Good morning, everybody. I want to <clears throat> invite you guys to turn over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend the next bit of our time together. Continuing on this remarkable story of the church in its earliest days and of what God did to spread its message all around the world. Uh, while you're turning over there, I want to especially greet you if you're here for the first time. I know Bill has already done that. I want to add my greeting, tell you how happy we are to have you here. And if you're someone who's here evaluating what it means to be a Christian and whether or not uh, following Jesus is something you want to do with your life uh, and don't own a copy of the Bible yet, we want to offer you a copy of the Bible. We've provided them at the center of each aisle, um, hoping that, that you would take one with you and, and have that as your own copy, and then we'd love to follow up with you, both on what you're going to hear this morning and also on what you'll read there for yourself. So uh, please do give us a chance to, to, to meet you. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if anybody else saw this. There was, uh, I think it was toward the end of last year, earlier in this year, I kept hearing re- references to this uh, podcast interview or vidcast or whatever, uh, with Aaron Rodgers and, uh, and I guess his girlfriend, Danica Patrick, you know, the NASCAR driver. Apparently she has a podcast. Who knew? Uh, and she decided to interview Aaron Rodgers. And I heard, kept hearing about it because it was sort of a worlds are colliding moment for me. I, I'm a football fan. Many of you know that. I also do a lot with religion. Uh, all of you, I guess, know that. And, and Aaron Rodgers, in this podcast interview, was riffing on religion. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, that's got to be interesting. Anybody else see that, by the way? Anybody else? A few hands. Not many of you saw it. It's, it's only a few minutes long. It might be worth your time. It was, an interesting, it was an interesting conversation because of his perspective on organized Christianity, organized religion like, like ours, like what we're doing here right now this morning, uh, based on his background and on the journey that he's been on in his own personal faith. So he talked about growing up in church, the, the, the church that his parents took him to, basically drug him to. His perspective on that church was that mostly everybody was there because they felt like they had to be. He described coming to see organized Christianity, the, the doctrines and the gatherings and the rules and the regulations as something that ultimately he just didn't need. It just didn't work for him. Here's a, here's a quote from him from this interview. I had some good friendships along the way, he says, that helped me to figure out exactly what I wanted to believe in. Ultimately, it was that rules and regulations and binary systems don't really resonate with me. You know what he means by a binary system, an either or, an in or an out, a true or a false way of looking at the world just didn't resonate for him anymore. He continued, religion can be a crutch. It can be something that people have, have to have to make themselves feel better because it's set up binary. It's us and them, saved and unsaved. Heaven and hell, enlightened and heathen. It makes a lot of people just feel better about themselves, end quote. I wonder if that perspective feels familiar to you. It sounded familiar to me. Maybe it sounds like people you love, people in your family or in your neighborhood or in your workplace who share Roger's perspective on what organized religion is really all about. Maybe his concerns about these either-ors, these binaries, these systems, these rules and regulations or concerns that, that you have about Christianity. And if so, if the perspective that you just heard from him is one that, that you're grappling with this morning, I think our text is going to be especially useful to you. See, see, Rogers isn't actually wrong about the exclusivity at the heart of Christianity. He's right about that. You're going to see it in the text this morning. The Bible does claim that there is a, a right, 
understanding of the world and, and wrong understandings of the world. That there is a, a, a people of God that you can be in, part of, or not be in, not be part of. That there is a, a heaven, a new heavens and a new earth, a restored creation where everything that's been broken, everything spoiled by sin will be made new. That you can either be part of or that you won't be part of. He's not wrong about that. The Bible teaches that Jesus is not just one holy person among many, but the one and only Savior that we can trust. And the Bible also teaches that he's the one and only Lord over everything. This same Savior also rules. That depending on him as a Savior comes with rules and regulations for your life. And I get that that sort of exclusivity is a unique problem for a lot of our neighbors today. But what you're going to see in this text that we're going to consider this morning is that it's actually been a problem from the very beginning. The claim of Christianity to to be the truth in a world full of options has always caused problems for Christians. And what we're going to see this morning is Peter charting out this ground and dealing with the consequences. Wherever this gospel goes out and acts as the story unfolds step by step, as it moves from Jerusalem to the rest of Judea and into Samaria next door and then to the ends of the earth, everywhere it goes, Christianity presents a message of exclusive salvation through Jesus for anyone who will have him. And everywhere it goes, it meets opposition from those who, can't, who, who just can't accept that claim. We're going to get our first look at it this morning, and so we're going to use this morning as a chance to prepare for uh, learning what we can learn of, of this theme throughout the rest of the book. Now, what I want to do is highlight for you two main statements that Peter makes in the speech that he gives before a, a, a trial that he's called to in, in Acts chapter 4. There are two main statements. There's a lot of story here, and we're going to try to let the story unfold in the way that, that Luke wants it to for us. But, but we're going to try to zero in as we do that through this story on two main statements I want to go ahead and put on your radar now before I read the text. Luke gives us this story. Luke records for us these words that Peter spoke in a moment of truth so that we would know that there's no other Savior, first of all, but Jesus and then that there's no other Lord but Jesus. The first statement we'll zero in on is Peter telling anyone who will listen, there is no other Savior but this one. And then Peter zeroes in on, zeroes in on the claim that comes straight out of this first one. Because there's no other Savior, there, there's also no other Lord. I want to I help you understand the weight of both of these claims using the story to get there. And I want to begin by reading it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up uh, our story in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord to us. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. You can be seated. The action picks up where we left off last week. Here are some scenes from the previous episode. A man lame from birth has been healed in the name of Jesus. A crowd gathers wanting to know what's just happened. Peter tells them that the Jesus they had crucified is still alive and well. Alive again. Ruling over all. And it's his power that's made this man well. But instead of warning them to run for their lives from this king they tried to overthrow who's now come back to take his throne, he invites them instead to run to Jesus for forgiveness and for life. And as they're speaking, Peter and John, as they're unpacking this beautiful message of hope and healing, the religious leaders who are responsible for the temple and for the spiritual lives of Israel overall notice what's going on and come over to investigate. They don't like what they find when they get there. Luke highlights two reasons why they don't like it. First, what Peter and John were teaching. They didn't agree with it. We're told that they were greatly annoyed. Did you see that, verse 2? They were greatly annoyed. And the reason they were annoyed is that Peter and John were teaching the people in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In other words... They weren't just telling people that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They were telling them that, but that wasn't all of it. They were 
proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In other words, through Jesus, you could be raised from the dead. Not just, it's not just his resurrection. It's an offer to you of resurrection. This annoyed them. They were not encouraged by it. So we aren't told exactly why, but I think the mention of the Sadducees is a powerful clue. This was a very influential group of religious leaders in Israel at this time. And one of their distinctive beliefs was that there would be no resurrection of the dead. You, you, you see them come up in the Gospels a lot. And one time they actually tried to trap Jesus uh, on this point, pushing back on his teaching about resurrection by trying to get him into a kind of absurd situation that would, that would show how ridiculous it was to believe that resurrection was possible. Maybe this is sounding familiar. What they're hearing now is an all-too-familiar heresy for them, and they are not going to have it. So they arrest the apostles, and they put them in custody until the next day when they can get to it. The first thing they don't like is what Peter and John were teaching. They disagree. The second thing they don't like about what's happening comes out in the question they ask of these men once the trial actually begins. So we're told they bring in the apostles. They set them in the midst. In other words, there would have been this whole council of religious leaders seated in the round, and then a place at the very center for those who are on trial to stand and give an account for themselves. So they set Peter and John in the midst. And, and when they ask them the question they ask them, we get an even better look at what they're so worried about. They don't actually interrogate them on the doctrine that they were teaching that they didn't like. Their first question to these men is about power. By what power or by what name did you do this? See, another thing the Sadducees were known for was being really super cozy with the Roman government that had conquered their land and now ruled over it. The Sadducees and others in this room were willing to give enough loyalty to Rome to maintain their own privileged place in Israel. Gave them some space to move and to influence on their own terms. And they were really protective of this power that they had. This authority that had been ceded to them by their conquerors. And a disturbance like this one. You know where you've got thousands of people rallying around this message. And thousands and thousands of people coming to believe in it. This, this sort of disturbance, this mass movement could bring the kind of attention from Rome that they don't want at all. I think it's interesting that the way, the way that Luke sets this scene up is that even though it's the apostles who've been arrested, and even though it's the apostles who are now, in a sense, facing possibly the end of their life, even though it's these religious leaders who hold all the cards and are literally holding court, it's clearly the religious leaders who are feeling vulnerable. They're the ones who feel threatened. Their beliefs have been challenged and so has their power. And what Peter says to them next won't ease their fears at all. He may be the one on trial, but from the beginning of his words to them, he turns the tables around and confronts them. Peter's answer to their question, by what power, but why name did you do this, reminds me, maybe it's because it's, you know, primary season and you're used to seeing people get interviewed. There's a kind of interview skill that, that you come to recognize that basically no matter what the question is, it gets asked. Like, you've got a talking point you're going to get to, you know? And, and maybe you'll throw like a little nod or a little bone to the question, but then you're just going to go in and, and push your own content, your own copy out there to the world. I think Peter's doing that. He's been preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. 
He's been preaching about the resurrection of the dead that's available in Jesus. And he's not shifted his topic. So he answers their question about what power he's done this deed in. But then he jumps right to the message he's pushing out to anyone who will listen to him. So let me show you how he answers, but then really the point he wants to make. Because that's the first statement that we need to grapple with in this story if we want to understand its importance for us. So, Peter answers them. He does answer them. We let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth has this man been made well. It's a one-sentence summary of the sermon we considered last week. He reminds them that they crucified this man, but then that God has raised him up and that he lives now, ruling over, over all that is. That's who made this man well. It's only his power. And then from there, he jumps to what he really wants them to know about Jesus. In verses 11 and 12, we get the first of our two statements about Jesus that we want to understand together this morning. Let me reread those two verses for you. This Jesus, the one who made this man well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior but Jesus. That's statement number one. Now, I think this image that Peter is using is super helpful for us to understand what he's trying to get across. This image comes from Psalm 118. This image of a stone rejected by some builders that then goes on to become the cornerstone. I want to make sure you understand that because if you can get that image, get your mind around the image, I think the point will become a whole lot clearer. Imagine builders who are constructing a stone structure. They've got all these stones that have been cut. They've got a lot of material to work with. It's all scattered around the work site. But what they need is a cornerstone that will be able to, to, to provide the superstructure or support for the superstructure. As, as it goes up, it's going to need a foundation in place that can handle the weight. The more weight you add as you, as you continue to build up the building, the more important it is to have a stone that can handle it or else the whole thing will collapse. So they're searching for a, a cornerstone, a suitable foundation for the building they're constructing. These builders go through their stones one by one. You can see them like examining them, turning them each way, hefting them to see what their weight is, examining whether or not they're stable or, or, or need to be discarded. And they're tossing away stones that, that, that won't get the job done. These builders, these religious leaders responsible for Israel's life before God saw Jesus, evaluated him, Looking ahead to the world they were hoping for, that God had promised them, they considered whether or not this was a stone they could build on, and he just didn't fit the shape or the size or the weight they were looking for. They essentially tossed him aside and said, he can't handle it. We can't build around him. And what Peter is saying is that God disagrees with them. That this stone that they believe wasn't suited to the task is in fact the stone on which God is building Everything that he's promised to build, it all falls on him, on his shoulders. God has made this Jesus the cornerstone so that everything depends on him. And that's what Peter means when he says in verse 12 that there's salvation in no one else. There's no other stone that can carry that weight. There's no other stone that can keep that structure solid and withstanding the forces that come against it. There's no other name by which we must be saved. 
You can see here, can't you, that Peter really is guilty of the sort of binary that Aaron Rodgers doesn't like? You can be saved by Jesus, Peter says, or you can be lost without him. It's either or. But the important thing to notice here, friends, is that Peter set up this either or, this binary, not because he's small-minded. If what we were talking about when we were talking about religion, what you hope in, the way that you see the world, the way that you're oriented to everything that's happening in your life, if, we're, if what we're talking about with religion were something more like music, the kind of music that we enjoy, well, well, maybe it would be small-minded to say what Peter has said. I think, you'd, I think you would be right to accuse me of small-mindedness if I insisted on the superior quality of bluegrass over modern country. I would insist on that, but I, 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 could, I, I think I'd be subject to your criticism of me. That's why people enjoy different kinds of music. You know, each to his own. Or if I insisted on the superiority of New York style over Chicago-style pizza, for example... I mean, it's a personal preference. Maybe small-minded of me to, 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 to make a statement like that. I'm not even sure I would, to be honest. When we complain about those sorts of binaries as applied to religion, I think what, underneath that is an assumption that religion is pretty much that way. It, it, what we look to in our religion is really basically the same thing we look to in our choice of music or movies or, or pizza. Personal preference, part of our own brand, part of what we do to cope and make our way through life. Some, some sort of commodity or even an indulgence. As, as Rogers put it, a way to, to feel better about ourselves. There's some therapeutic value in it. But, you know, if, if that's really what it is, then there's going to be lots of places you can get that, get what you need. It would be small-minded to say you can only get it here. But if, in fact, it's if, in fact, it's more than personal preference, if, in fact, it, it, it's a life or death matter, well, that's, that's a different thing altogether. Friends, it isn't small-minded of you if you live on the Gulf Coast and you're near where I grew up and you know a hurricane's coming in and you can see how strong those winds are and you've got friends that are living in plywood and plastic and you tell them they need to run for some concrete and steel before it's too late. That's not small-minded. That's just recognizing the reality of the case. The stakes are too high for you to prefer that house to this one. That house, you'll die. This house, you can live. There's a cornerstone in place over here that can bear that weight, that can face that storm, that will handle everything thrown at it. And then there's vulnerability, nothing more than exposure over here. And Peter is making that kind of claim about Jesus. There's a hurricane coming. In Christ, you have a cornerstone that can stand up to all of it. You've got concrete and steel over here. So don't, don't settle for plywood and plastic. We don't have to look very far to see what Peter has in mind here. Remember just back to the beginning of the story. Remember what it was Peter was preaching. Remember what Luke told us to set all of this up. He was preaching the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. That's his punchline. That's his main topic and the thing he's offering to anybody who'll listen to him. And, and in this passage here, when he's talking to these leaders, he's not changed his subject. He's still on that. He's still thinking about resurrection from the dead. 
There's a reason when they asked him what name, he referenced the death and resurrection of Jesus. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up. Jesus was dead, and now he isn't. And Peter has seen it for himself with his own eyes. And that makes Jesus different from any other cornerstone you might rest your life on. See, only Jesus has come through death and out the other side with the promise that he can bring you with him. Jesus can deliver you from death, but no other religious leader is going to offer you that. You won't find that anywhere else. Maybe this week, more than normally, many of us are aware of the fragility of our lives, you know, of how vulnerable these bodies that we live in really are, how susceptible we are to forces we can't possibly control. And Bill prayed over some of these things just a few moments ago on the large scale, the coronavirus that we're hearing about all over the world and that now has made its way to our area. On a local level, the devastation of these tornadoes that we prayed over, lives were lost of people who were sleeping in their beds like they have every other night. You go to sleep just like normal and then boom, Tragic events like these do have the tendency to bring us and our weakness before death out of the shadows and into the light, if only briefly, and that is good for us. But, friends, it can also be deceiving because deaths like these, deaths like the ones we're reading about, the kind that grab headlines, they always seem exceptional. That's why they make the news. They're newsworthy. And you know what? Chances are you won't get the coronavirus. And because you're sitting here this morning, we know you you weren't killed by the storms that ravaged our area over the last week. But death itself, friends, that's not exceptional. There's nothing exceptional about it. And its power to destroy is no less devastating in old age by natural causes than in the unexpected and sudden kind of tragedies we've been watching around us this week. This problem is a guarantee for every person who's ever lived, and that includes you. And the question that this text confronts us with is what what are you trusting for protection? Is the building that, that is your life built on a cornerstone that can withstand that kind of storm? I've been framing this so far the way Peter has. It's a a negative framing. There's no one else. But I think before we move on, it it wouldn't be right if we didn't stop and flip it to positive and say, yeah, there's no one else. But that message only is worthy of, of, of this time that Peter's given to it because it comes with a message that in Jesus, for there is a protection. You, you can actually build your life on a cornerstone that no storm will ever affect. Peter has done that. Think about this man, where he stands right now. He stands before the exact same crowd that crucified Jesus. Same names that were listed here. It's not an accident. Luke wants you to know. You remember what happened with Jesus. Peter's now in that room. He's now facing that crowd, and he's now got those same stakes hanging over his head, just like Jesus told him they would be. 
The Peter who was alive as Jesus went through his trial was a Peter who ran for the hills. He denied that he even knew Jesus. Now he faces his own trial, not just outside warming himself by the fire, but before men who had the power of his life in, his, in their hands. And he almost taunts them. He's just not afraid. What happened to him in those two months-ish? What's happened to him is that he's seen something. What's happened to him is that he has heard something. Through his own body and its senses, he has confirmed the reality of something that has changed what he sees as he faces down a court that could take his life. He's seen Jesus, the same one he watched die, alive again. He's heard Jesus, the same Jesus who died and rose, tell him of a kingdom that's coming and that nothing can stop. He's heard this Jesus promise that kingdom to him. And that's all he needs to see. His life has been changed by what he's seen. And friends, yours can be too. This Jesus is alive. And he can offer resurrection to anyone who trusts in him. So trust in him. There's no other savior. I want us to also consider together this second statement that Peter makes before this trial. Because it's such an important point of contact with the first statement. The second statement he's going to make now and the part of the story we're about to consider, it flows right out of the first one that he's already made. The fact that there's no other Savior means that there's also no other Lord. Jesus demands an allegiance that is no less exclusive, no less comprehensive than the trust that is demanded of anyone who will Rest in him and enjoy what he's accomplished. There's no other savior, and because there's no other savior, there's no other Lord either. Now, once again, I think we're going to get more out of the statement he's going to make if we let the story carry us there. So let me pick it back up in verse 13. Peter tells us that, or, or rather Luke tells us that these These religious leaders are just in shock over what they've seen from Peter and John. They're shocked about their boldness. Where'd they get that? They're shocked at what they can, how they're speaking, what they can say. They're uneducated, common men, and yet here they're holding the room. They've made this room theirs. Who are these guys? Where did they get this kind of ability? They're shocked. They also can't deny that there's an incredible miracle that's taken place. They can see that as clear as day. There's nothing else they can say about it. Verse 16, we, we can't deny it. Everyone else sees it, and, and we do too. But what they can't live with is Peter's explanation of all these facts that they can't deny. Did you notice that when we read through it together? They're seeing it all. Okay, man was healed. We know that guy. We've seen him unable to walk, and now he can. Can't deny that. These men should not have the ability to make this man well. We can't deny that either. They're speaking to us as no one does before this court. Where do they get off speaking to us like this? Who are these guys? We can't deny that that's something we can't explain. And then Peter has just laid out for them an explanation that ties it all together. We've seen a man whom you killed raised to life again. 
We've heard that man offer us the same resurrection he now enjoys. So honestly, we're just not afraid of you. It explains all of it. But they don't even consider his explanation. These truths they can't deny are inconvenient truths to them. And what they care about most is not truth. What they care about most is power. So they don't even take up what Peter has said. And in place of argument, in place of analysis, what they fall back on is power. They just flex their muscles. Did you guys see this? We can't deny it, verse 16. We see all of this, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Okay, that ought to work. Let's do that. Let's just, let's just suppress this. Let's cancel Peter's message since we can't engage Peter's message. But they've completely misunderstood who they're dealing with. They call him in. They charge him not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They think, maybe, at least we're hoping. That it, okay, we got this tied up. We're actually being merciful. You know, we could have killed them. We won't do that. We'll just let them go and make sure that they don't do it again. Kind of a slap on the wrist. But, but they have misunderstood who this man is and what he's all about. See, if there's no hope of resurrection, if you're a Sadducee, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, well, of course you just got to make the most of your life now. What else are you going to do? You're going to care a lot about power, in other words. Not just like real political power or the power of government, but just merely the power to organize your own life, the details of your life in a way that, that seems best to you. You're going to care about making the most of your opportunities and protecting your interests. What else is there if there's no resurrection of the dead? You've got to maximize what you can get out of this life now. They're just operating consistently out of their own beliefs. And they assume Peter will too. And if Peter did care about power, if he were really mostly interested in making the most of the years that he has now in this life, on this earth, this right here would be the time to cut his losses and live to fight another day. They are giving him the out they would have wanted. But Peter's horizons stretch further than theirs. Peter has the hope of resurrection. Peter's hope is not just tethered to an ideal, but to a specific person whom he knows who can give it to him. And when you're living with the hope of resurrection, when your horizons stretch on beyond death, then you're set free to put power aside for loyalty to this man who can give you what no one else can. Look at verse 19. Look at how Peter responds to them. Peter and John answered them. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. It's a creative way of making a really simple and straightforward point. Like, we serve him. We don't, we don't serve you. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Verse 20. I've seen him alive. I've heard what he's told me. Your threats just don't register anymore. In other words, what you're threatening to do is just above your pay grade. I mean, the kind of power you're asserting just isn't really that important. I got to obey him. See, for Peter, the fact that there's no other savior, 
The fact that, that Jesus is a Savior means that there's no other Lord that matters either. He's the cornerstone for Peter's life now. That's that. And friends, we should know, we need to know, that this kind of exclusive allegiance to Jesus is just a basic part of being a Christian. The Christian life isn't a, a two-stage thing where you benefit from Jesus as a Savior, where you trust in what he provides you, but then, but then maybe, optionally, you, you follow his teachings, you obey his commands, you live in, in and through his kingship over you. It's a package deal. always goes together. If he is a savior, then he must also be Lord. Now, and as you, as you sit with that this morning, there are two things from this story I want you to consider. The statement is, is simple and clear, hopefully enough, by now. There's no other Lord. This kind of exclusive allegiance to Jesus, where he has an absolute authority over our lives, is a basic part of what it is to be a Christian. I want you to sit with that. I want you to reflect on that. And as you do, I want you to think about two things from this story. First, friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, based on this account and many more that we're going to consider together throughout Acts, you should be prepared for your allegiance to Jesus to cause problems. This is the first of many cases. It gets a lot worse from here, actually. I mean, Peter does basically get off with a slap on the wrist in this story. That that's going to that's gonna change soon enough. And, and, and honestly, if Christianity is going to be one of just many influences in your life, you know, one of several different seasonings that you've added to your own sauce, then, then, then that version of Christianity probably won't be that offensive to anybody. Folks probably won't mind it any more than they mind your accent or your personal taste in movies. You know, each to his own. That's how the, the first people to hear this Christian message in the Roman world, that's how they expected the Christians that they knew to engage with the world, to have just taken in one new God into a pantheon of other gods. As long as we can continue also bowing the knee to, to these gods, and one more isn't going to cause anybody any problems. It's just one extra bit of seasoning, a dash of salt in, a, in an otherwise diverse and complex taste that is this sauce of life. That's what they expected. They were not expecting what they got from Christians. Christians faced down death routinely in these early years. And the Romans, were their, their minds were blown by it. Why would you? I mean, what's the harm in, in just going ahead and pledging allegiance to the, the emperor? And then also you can have your Jesus too. Why would you throw away your life like that? They couldn't make sense of it. And the Christians starting here with Peter and then on and on through Christian history in those early years, we're just routinely telling them, you don't get it. We get something different from Jesus than you get from him. One of the, uh, one of the most interesting books I read recently is a book called um, uh, Pagans and Christians in the City by a legal scholar uh, who's also a, a, something of a historian of the church named Stephen Smith. And he talks a lot about why, why did Christianity, especially in its early years and then now in contemporary American society, provoke such strong negative reactions? Why were Romans killing Christians because they were Christians, for example? Especially in a society like theirs that was so permissive. There was so much religious diversity and 
and what, what seemed, at least on the surface level, like a lot of tolerance back then. And in four or 500 pages, his book basically makes the case that they just couldn't see religion the same way that their Roman neighbors saw religion. Their Roman neighbors thought, oh, you, you give a little and you give, you give us something of, of what you have and we'll give you something of what we have and, and then we'll, we'll all just share with one another. There are all these ways that just add to a, a bigger perspective on the world than what you'd have if we only had our own. But they missed, they missed what, for the early Christians, Jesus really was. And Smith's analogy for it was, was like trading real money for counterfeit money. As if, as if you, as a Christian, should be just as willing to, to, to accept monopoly money from somebody as, and, and, and to give them your real money as, as the other way around. It's all just different currencies, right? And he's like, no, 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 these Christians believed there's only one currency that's actually backed by something that delivers. There's, there's one true dollar and a lot of counterfeit out there. It was off the map, and it caused problems. And it still does, friends. When you have an ultimate allegiance like this that, that just can't tolerate competitors, it'll touch everything in your life with an absolute authority. And though we should never be provocative on purpose, though we shouldn't try to alienate, Though we should, we should come at people with the gentleness and humility of Jesus, we should expect the same kind of resistance that they lived with back then. Because we have the same ultimate allegiance that they had. It could be that you'll face this from a government like they did back here in Acts. Like it's been, that's been true so often throughout church history. It'd be odd if we lived our whole lives and never had to deal with that. But much more likely, it'll be subtle and every day. We're in, in, in our culture, the allegiance that is among the highest that we hold is the allegiance to every individual's right to be final court on what's good and bad, right and wrong, worthy and not. And when you won't bow the knee to that understanding of, what, of where authority comes from, your allegiance will bump into theirs. And we can't be surprised if that hurts and if there are costs involved. And we also need to learn from this story that if we're to face up to it and to face it with joy and confidence, not with bitterness, not with fist shaking, not with resentment, to face it like Peter did, we're going to need the same hope, the same cornerstone that Peter had. This ultimate allegiance that puts us at odds with all other competing lords is based in the fact that our Lord died and rose. He's actually alive now. So who else would we serve? Who else would we obey? There's one more thing to mention. As you sit with this, this exclusive allegiance to Jesus is a basic part of being a Christian. I know some of you may be hearing that as, as friends who are considering still whether or not you want to be Christian. And, and maybe what you know about Christianity is that there are a lot of rules and regulations. You know, Aaron Rodgers wasn't wrong about that either. A lot of rules and regulations. A lot of this, not that. And maybe you've begun to look into the specific things that the Bible calls us to do or not do, and you recognize that there are plenty of things in the Bible that, that don't sit right with you. Things you wouldn't want to say yes to or things that you may not see any problem with that the Bible says you say no to. 
if that's where you are, I want to remind you what Peter's saying here. The allegiance that's called for, the same allegiance that'll bring rules and regulations to your life, is a downstream allegiance. It comes downstream of your conviction that Jesus Christ died and is risen. It's not about just a random set of moral teachings that are some scheme for shoring up self-righteousness that make you feel better about yourself and worse about others. That's not what it is. These moral teachings, these rules and regulations that come with the package, stand or fall with Jesus. If Jesus is the crucified and risen Son of God that he claims to be, if he's the only name under heaven by which any of us have any hope, then you accept the moral teachings because he tells you to. If he's not risen, if he can't give you life, if he's not the reigning Son of God who sits enthroned over all, then by all means, take what you like from what he teaches and leave the rest. Don't bother pledging allegiance, though. See, everything stands or falls with with who Jesus really is, with what Jesus really accomplished. So start there. Don't evaluate Jesus based on how you feel about the package deal of moral rules and regulations, of teachings that may or may not sit right with you. Evaluate Jesus on whether or not he died and rose again. And if he did, allegiance will fall from that. See, these these religious leaders couldn't go there. They couldn't evaluate Jesus. Their own agenda was so precious to them that they couldn't allow themselves to, to entertain what Peter told them. It was too risky, too threatening. So they just tried to cancel it. And my, my plea to you as we close and pray is not to make the same mistake that they did. The two statements Peter gives us here are basically the two steps of the Christian life that we'll take together from now to the end of time. We trust and we obey. There's no other Savior. We trust in Him. There's no other Lord. We, we obey Him. And those are steps that you can take this morning And I'm going to pray that God will give you the grace to take them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for speaking truth to us by your word and for giving us the clarity that Peter has offered in his words about who Jesus is, what he can do for us, and what living under him will require of us. We want to to engage Jesus with clear eyes. Thank you for helping us to do that through what you've spoken this morning. And we pray now that by what you've spoken, you would change our hearts that you would protect us from the self-deception that kept these leaders from seeing who Jesus really was, that you would protect us from the self-protection that might short-circuit our ability to think carefully about him, and that you would give us a clear view of our situation, the desperate need that we have for a deliverer beyond what we can do for ourselves. And we pray that you would lead us to Jesus to find salvation under his name. And I pray that in his name. Amen.